Hey folks, welcome to Narratives. Narratives is a podcast exploring the ways in which the world is better than in the past, the ways it is worse, and the paths towards a better, more definite vision of the future. I'm your host, Will Jarvis, and I want to thank you for taking the time out of your day to listen to this episode. I hope you enjoy it. You can find show notes, transcripts, and videos at narrativespodcast.com. Well, John, Shoni, how are you guys doing today? Very good. Okay. Thank you. Awesome. Awesome. Do you all mind giving a brief bio and some of the big ideas you're interested in? So uh, my background is in architecture and environmental science. Uh, basically, I've been running a company called Last Meter uh, for the last few years, which is focused on essentially integrating uh, modern consumption patterns, essentially service-based consumption, i.e. delivery-based consumption, into uh, buildings, basically. Like, I think if you want to make these uh, services more efficient, you essentially need to design them into the business model and the architectural like spatial plan and design and experience of modern living. So rather than car parking, you have, you know, access to car sharing and rather than, you know, endless closets full of clothes you don't use, you have, you know, sort of structured, you know, uh, clothing rental and returns and so forth. That business is taking too long to really expand, but it's based on kind of architecture and sustainable um, design expertise. And that kind of led to like expertise in like, um, like computational design, basically, because if you want to solve any of this, you've got to kind of compute it. And that gave the background for uh, Treasury, which I'll, <laughs> which I'll share <laughs> with you in, in just one second. Maybe Sean, you can introduce yourself. Yeah. Uh, so uh, my background is more kind of in digital marketing. Um, I was working in the e-com space doing some fashion. Um, uh, then I went, you know, out on my own and did some freelancing, uh, did some kind of B2B uh, software as a service and consulting, um, more like Salesforce um, consulting firms. Um, so I did that uh, for about two years. Um, and then now I'm, I'm, I'm working with treasury, uh, me and John connected over Twitter of all places. Uh, and, uh, now I'm a uh, director of sales and marketing at treasury. That's great. All the best things come from Twitter. I found at least in, in meeting people. <laughs> so, so it's a quick background to treasury. I mean, basically I, I, I started a, a, a podcast, um, everyone starts podcasts, um, about essentially spatial technology, right? How, Broadly speaking, computational design and, and computational, uh, computational, computational architecture and computational um, urban design with the broad relevance of those things. And, it, and then as that was progressing, Epic Games, which makes Unreal Engine, which is an in, increasingly powerful design tool for you know, the, the, the spatial design domain. Um, so I'm sponsoring it. And then I kind of think it was thinking broader and broader, right? What conversations is spatial computational design part of? And I just basically was speaking to a guy called Matt Ball, right, who's become a very prominent and kind of reliable commentator on the so-called metaverse um, about how that's going to work, right? And I said, if you want to build a metaverse, which in our language, just deeply pragmatic, is like any di digital spatial environment, if you want to build such a thing quickly and populate it quickly, you're going to have to license lots of digital spatial models, I said, well, that's pretty obvious. And I was like, you know, how's that going? He's like, what do you mean? And I said, well, um, you can't just make these things, right? They're very hard to make. <laughs> um, and a lot of the designs you might want to use are actually owned by people. I mean, you know, real estate is owned. The monuments people want in their games or experiences are usually owned. And when he 
process that I might be a little bit <laughs> theatrically underplaying his insight, but essentially, broadly speaking, people in the metaverse are um, unaware of the need to license in content. And when I explained that clues to Matt, he said he would invest in it. And I was like, well, hmm. That then, therefore, maybe somebody should create it. It's not already in existence. A way to get licensed spatial content into metaverse type things. So then I started asking a bunch of my colleagues and friends in in like very senior architecture offices, people I've worked with, people that have been on my podcast, people I'm interested in working with. What do you think about the idea of licensing your unused um, designs, basically, into metaverse applications? And everyone was like, "Well, this is great. We've been thinking about that for years. We don't know how to do it." Uh, you know, and so we set up a, a venture fundraising round in roughly October or November, November of last year, when the three months had raised um, a fair amount of money on a very good valuation from very good investors. <laughs> Some of that's not public, and we're not ready to make it public yet. But um, it's been an extremely accelerated ride into like the heart of uh, our cultural design technology uh, since then. Um, so that's the background. I'm happy to tell you what we actually do at some point after all this babbling, but <laughs> that's some of the background. I love that. I love that. I, I want to dive in a little bit first. Uh, you've got an interesting background. So, so you were an architect originally, is that correct? Um, well, okay. So uh, st- strictly speaking, I have a number of like um, uh, like professional like competencies uh, or, uh, or disciplines that I've, I've worked on. I've, my bachelor's degree is in um, uh, ancient languages and Indian studies from Oxford University. I've, you know, have some training in classical music. Um, I have, you know, a lot of uh, training experience in architect in environmental science and uh, a post-professional diploma and a lot of experience in um, architecture. And in the middle there, I could have picked up sort of morphology stuff, and then. A, lot, a bunch of like computation skills kind of added themselves in the middle there in various ways, almost by, you know, in, in, but almost inevitably. But so those four or five things are areas where I would say I have like definable skills and professional um, experience uh, from which I work, basically. Gotcha. And, and I'll circle back to that. But I, I'm curious, what does the future look like in terms of the metaverse? You know, I, Mark talks about Zuckerberg talks about it a lot. You know, um, uh, will we be spending more time in virtual worlds in the future? You know, uh, how much of that shift do you expect to happen? And over what time scale do you think um, will we be spending significant amounts of time within 3D worlds within uh, the metaverse versus kind of in reality, quote unquote reality, if that makes sense? Well, yeah. So, so we have to be kind of careful here because, you know, we're already spending 100% of our time in, in a 3D world. It just happens to be the real one, right? right. So, so, so we're very immersed in a world, right, which is 3D. And that's kind of part of the, the subtlety here. I mean, the, the way that we set it up, we, we've written a, a framework paper on this, a white paper, which kind of sets up our, the, the whole technical environment of Treasury and helps clarify what we think people mean by the metaverse, right? And, and the best way to get into that is to um, kind of go back to, you know, whenever it was late 90s when the, 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 the you know, the, the phrase cyberspace uh, was unfolding and, and people said actually quite similar things to, 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 to the premise of your question, which is, you know, when will be, when will, will we be in cyberspace? When will we do things in cyberspace? And really what happened was that, um, cyberspace never became a thing that we went to. It just came to us. And rather than becoming one holistic phenomenon or experience, it just became a piece of everything we do, right? Cyberspace, that was obviously the internet. 
And rather than the internet being a place you log on to, there's just a little piece of internet and everything, right? And so what we believe in our, you know, our, our sort of, we call it the spatial web thesis, is that there is a convergence of technologies, of spatial technologies, onto the internet-enabled economy and society. And essentially, there's going to be an infrastructural spatial layer on everything that is interneted, as it were. And all of that will be what people currently think the metaverse is, but it won't be a place you go because it will just be there, right? I mean, that's the quick version of it, is that the metaverse is going to be a place that you go to. It'll be something in almost everything that we do, and it'll be so embedded we won't notice. Um, so that's the, that's the broad thesis. I mean, there's lots of nuances there, um, which I can share with you. Let me know if I should just, just carry on and give you, <laughs> give you more of that, or if you want to follow up on that question. Yeah, I, what does that mean? Uh, you know, when you talk about uh, the, the spatial reality, um, does that look more like augmented reality at some level where, you know, you'll be walking around, you'll, you'll see like, uh, you know, objects will pop into view and, and this will be kind of just integrated in everyday life. Kind of like how you described the internet has kind of uh, permeated everything in the sense that, you know, I, I, I'm on the internet much more than I would like to believe. It's not just right here when you and I, the three of us are talking. It's also when I walk outside, I walk my dog, I'm listening to Spotify. It's kind of constant if, in, yeah. in some sense. Um, so, I mean, with respect, I think the question is a, 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 a somewhat framed in a somewhat shallow way. Uh, and I think in terms of the history of not just technology, but the history of cognition, we, we can kind of unpack and have a much richer way of uh, addressing that, right? I think there is a naive concept, right, that has come into um, general acceptance to the point that's not really taken, it's not even sort of observed to be the case in how we um, view the world, that there is a very clear um there is a bright line between what is objective and what is subjective, um, and in, in respect of in respect of this issue, right? You know, the, 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 how we perceive the world that is problematic, right? And it's actually very easy to problematize that, right? So, if, and I can ask you a question: If somebody looks at a block of print, right, on a wall, um, and they are um, illiterate, what are they experiencing? there right well they're clearly not having any information transfer it's just time it's just it's just shape right right so when you look at a block block of information on the wall what is happening in distinction because clearly there's some information unfolding now if that information is about the environment you're in let's say there's a description of a painting right to what extent are we interacting with the physical world in an objective sense or to what extent are we interacting with an information layer on top of the world all right what, what I'm getting at here is that since the beginning of time, we have had a variable level of immersivity in the world around us, depending on a variety of interface dynamics, information, lighting, right? If you turn the lights in the room, right, that is a different environment than the one with the lights on, right? But physically, it's the same thing. The information transfer is very different, and the experience and the, and the cognitive and uh, uh, um, framing of it is very different. And so it's not difficult to say that it's just not true that we aren't creating layers of meaning and immersion in the world around us without any technical um, overlay, right? So I think so what we've done, right, in our spatial web thesis to really clear this stuff out and say, look, you wanted to, to understand and put it in a truly historical context and like you know, neurobiological cognitive context, what's happening with the metaverse, you need to separate at least two things out from the conversation of 
what you were describing, you know, where are we going to end up in terms of these, you know, these virtual realities, what are called technical immersivity and narrative immersivity, right? And so if you go back to the time of cave painting, so whatever it is, hundreds of thousands of years ago, um, uh, what was going on with painting on the walls, right? They clearly had meaning, right? And presumably they were relatively important, right? They had some... Power uh, and one might say that meaning or that power is a is a kind of immersivity. And I would like I like to imagine that these were the equivalent of the movies, right? I mean, maybe that's absurd, but just follow me here because it makes it clearer. <laughs> People could sit there maybe with a fire fire flickering and tell stories or just have you know take drugs or whatever they would do and have an, an immersive experience. Now, narratively, right? This is why I say follow me. Let's imagine. Let's assume that that was the equivalent of a movie with a massive payoff and plot and just incredibly gripping scene. Um, how technically immersive is that? Well, zero. I mean, in any, in any, in any respect, it's the very, very lowest possible limit of technical immersivity. Nothing is being attached to your body. You know, the, te- the technological engagement, the, you know, the, 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 the amount of training you might require is essentially zero. But let's assume culturally the narrative immersivity is extreme. Now, if you take those two axes, what we call the axes of immersivity, what happens is that you can actually map, you can see it like a trend line, trend lines or evolutionary lines of immersivity across almost all human phenomena. And what you discover is that um, if you want to use the word metaverse as a kind of, as a way of describing a way, way, some, some idea that we've discovered a new realm of immersivity, that's definitely wrong. Right, because from cave paintings to you know you know drawings in a in a, in a book to novels to movies, n- n- narrative immersivity has been growing. The idea that we aren't escaping from the world when we read a novel or a movie is pathetically misguided. We obviously do. We do. It's called escapism, right? So the idea that somehow just a VR goggle set is like some breakthrough or some horrible new you know nadir of escapism is obviously wrong, right? Um, we do, we do highly isolating things. We go, we have, a, you know, we go, we listen to Kenny G in the bath, listening, you know, with, with smelly candles. Is that, is that narcissistic, you know, solipsistic hiding from the world? I mean, why is that more so than putting a few goggles in? It's making sense. So technical immersivity is sort of red herring, right? And that's one of the reasons why Facebook is failing. Because if you go into Horizon Worlds, right, their main platform, so Oculus is the, is the, is the, is the sort of operational platform for uh, VR, and Horizon Worlds is their own environment that they, that they are using the Oculus uh, technical platform to kind of promulgate. So like that is their uh, alternative to social media or whatever they're claiming it is. The narrative immersivity of that is fucking lame. Right, it's just non-existent. It's it's anti anti-immersive. It's like who are these people? What am I doing? This is pathetic. I want to go. Um, and so, if you don't understand that distinction, the immersivity has been, you know, the nature of the human cognitive experience since the beginning of time, since the beginning of the, of anything that looks like a modern human mind. You won't have anything to say usefully about the matter. You went, oh, we shouldn't wear, you know, VR goggles because oh, it's so solipsistic, or which is wrong because we've been reading novels for years. Uh, or it's so, you know, um, shit. Yeah, of course it's shit because there's no narrative, right? So when you, when you understand that, like the nature of technical and narrative immersivity, what, what it, it reinforces the general idea that we're having, we're going to have this distributed, um, layer of space technology 
the spatial web, as we call it, with very differing dynamics of narrative and technical innovativity, but it's going to be very profound. I'll give you an example. The breakthrough, right, the, 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 the given example that we have and we've absorbed without thinking about it, of spatial tech and the beginning of the metaverse is the universality of mapping, digital mapping, right? Because a digital map, the way it's working right now, is no one makes mapping products. They basically license a small piece of a mapping product, infrastructural quality mapping product, and put it in their app or whatever it may be. Almost everything has some mapping piece in it. And it's infrastructural technology that's embedded. The very small fee that goes from tons and tons of products. Not just building mapping shit anymore. It's Google or Mapbox. There's just very few people that build that stuff. And they distribute it as infrastructure. So there's a small piece of map in it. Now maps, like digital maps, have very poor, very low-level technical immersivity. You're not, you know, you're not manipulating some form factor to, to interpret a map. But here's the thing. It is narratively immersive the way we use it. Because you're in it. You're in a, a virtual space, right? As a virtual entity. It just happens to your, your pin, right? And what inter- what's happening is that, you know, if you just open a map and you're on it, the narrative emissivity is almost zero. If you tell me, ask the map to tell you where to go, where you're going or you need to go, then suddenly emissivity is a bit more. Oh, I've got to turn left here. And you can't forget to turn left. You've got to be immersive, immersive enough narratively to follow the story of your journey, right? And here's the thing. Imagine that you're trying to get to the hospital because you wife's having a baby or you know, you've broken your leg or whatever it is. The narrative in the city is something extremely high. Incredibly high. It's the top narrative in your life. How the fuck do I get to hospital? Technically, the emissivity is still low, right? And so the point is there's a direct through line from, if you follow the way I've presented it in totally anachronistic terms, cave painting as movies where the technical emissivity is essentially zero, but narrative emissivity is high to Google Maps, where if you use it for emergency navigation purposes, it's narratively extremely rich and technically just a little bit above a cave painting, right? So that is the correct way to see the metaverse. It's not to get lost in, oh, well, why are these technically immersive things not working for us or working for society? Because that's just somebody with money shilling it at you, buy my platform, engage in my platform, society should be in this new technically immersive thing. Who fucking cares? doesn't make a difference. It doesn't matter, right? Um, it's just somebody selling things to you. What we need to decide as a society is if we have new technically technical immersion arenas, and so VR is one of those, and AR is another of those, firstly, are they useful to us in any way at all? And if they're useful to us, one of the conventional, most profound ways that human beings generate and engage with uh, value is new narratives. What does it mean for us? Pokemon Go is new narrative, right? Pokemon Go is very interesting because Pokemon Go is a good example of technically immersive stuff. It is technically immersive to have a little beast uh, running around, you know, in a kind of photoreal representation in a geolocate, you know, in a, in a real environment, you are where you are and you can interact with it spatially. That is quite profound. It's very profound technically. And it's quite profound, like, you know, um, as a, as a sort of experience, technically what I mean is that it's, it's, it's magical. I mean, AR is magical technology. It's hyper technology that everyone now has. And, and the way you experience it is pretty cool, but narratively what they've created is an interesting game. Right, that's the breakthrough. That, that's the parallel breakthrough in the, in, the, in the history of technology. And so I'd say I'm going to avoid the red herring of saying, are we or are we not going to go down the road of like you know deep immersion in VR type metaverses, these highly encapsulated technical environments? Because obviously, and we know this already, the writing's on the wall for Meta. The narratives are shit. What I mean by narrative is the, is the sense of meaning making that they offer, and therefore no one's going to interact with them. So that needs to needs to be corrected. So the question needs to be: 
are we, do we have form factors that can generate new narratives? And the answer is yes. Now, if you were to ask me that question, I would come up with a different answer. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and what do those form factors look like, if that makes sense? I think that it's relatively straightforward, right? And this is from the history of like, you know, technology as hardware, as devices, um, is, is pretty good at this is that if, uh, the form factors aren't very integrated to our biomechanics and our general like interaction dynamics, um, they probably won't take off. Right. And so what you see in the world of devices is things that are just very easy to use, right? They're very, very simple in their form. They're very simple in their, in their, uh, inter- interfaces and affordances because they, they map to our biomechanics. And, and, and when I say biomechanics, I mean like the whole, the whole totality of like biological interaction dynamics. And so the biomechanics of a VR headset are disastrous for all sorts of reasons. Even if you make it ergonomic, I mean, it just isn't how we see the world, right? And so what I would say is that uh, form factors that have an augmentative or a facilitative or it doesn't have some other way integrated nature um, are likely to be the ones that succeed. Now, I'm not an expert in this stuff, but I have spent time looking at what, what form factors succeed and how they persist. And they're ones that are very native to our you know, are, are, are sort of genetically given and frozen biomechanics. And so I don't think it's a surprise that what Apple seems to be launching, what it's committing a lot of money to is not something like the Oculus headset, which is incredibly antagonistic to our biomechanics. Um, uh, and when I say biomechanics, I kind of mean like social dynamics occasioned by our biology as well. Like, can you see another person with your eyes when you talk to them? Right. Um, and the idea that you have a screen on your VR set with your eyes in it is a horrifying <laughs> simulacrum of that, which I don't think will work. Like eye signaling and otherwise body signaling and like, you know, precise muscle dynamic signaling, probably hard to avoid it. So if you encumber the face, the, as it were, biomechanical dimension of human interaction, human social engagement is probably a bit broken. So there's also some reasons why, a, you know, a full-on headset is unlikely to work. So Apple's approach, which appears to be some kind of glasses set, seems to be way more likely to take off. Now, um, you know, Google Glass was in that space, right? I think there's all sorts of reasons why that didn't work. One of the main reasons why I didn't think it was going to work is it was basically lethal. There were just bits of sharp metal that had no edge to them <laughs> pop- popping out. And I think all those things will be worked out at some point. But the key point is that... Um, I think that form factors that integrate with our biomechanics are likely to, on, likely to be the ones that kick off. And given that what we're talking about is a spatial uh, medium, um, it's primarily it's primarily uh, the visual domain that needs to be fed in some way. So it has to be something that engages with the visual medium. There's all sorts of ways technically that you can do that. They're all a bit dodgy, which is why we end up endlessly fiddling with these fully immersive like micro screens, like VR headsets. And then sound is also part of it. One thing that is very good about the Oculus headset is the way that they've fixed or evolved spatial sound. They've worked out ways of projecting sound around the ears and so forth. But um, yeah, I, th- I think um, for now, right, since the sort of the technical prognostication of the, of the sort that involves, you know, we'll get contact lenses or retinal implants. I despise that. I think that's evil. I think pragmatically we're going to have some kind of glasses thing and probably that kind of technology array will gradually be integrated into hats and visors and styles of clothing that we don't yet know that will make it more integrated, right? Something like that. 
That makes sense. That makes sense. I, I, I want to dig in a little bit and, and double click on what you guys are working on at, at Treasury. Um, can you talk a little bit about that um, and, and what you're building and, and, and what you're excited about? Yeah. So, um, so I kind of set up a little bit the you know, basic idea that, that people are building digital spatial environments would want to kind of shuffle away from the word metaverse, um, need digital spatial assets. And what I mean by that is not just any old 3D stuff. Is things that are building scale and above and where the key um, uh, value proposition of the object is its spatial characteristics. Now, one of the very weird things about uh, the world of, uh, of, of design in general, actually, and particularly in the spatial area of like, you know, 3D design is that there is very poor scientific distinction between thing, arch- architecture scale things, building scale things, and everything else. Uh, so architects, one of the reasons why the profession is Struggling, find it very hard to explain what they do that's different from anyone else that's just making stuff. The truth is that what architects are doing, architects are primarily doing is they are engineering, right? Let me give you the the, the formal definition that the profession doesn't really bother with because it's a bit too lazy. Uh, They are engineering spatial configuration, right? Spatial configuration is a very specific property uh, that has many sort of sub-dimensions, and it can be described actually mathematically. So you can write down what's called a circulation diagram to describe how you get around a building. And different circulation diagrams, amazingly, end up with different functions. If you have a circulation diagram that takes you around the perimeter, imagine rooms like in some way in a kind of like a like a like a circular shape around a central room, right? Around a building, a central room. If the circulation diagram only lets you get to the central room by going through each of the rooms in the kind of perimeter, and then finally exiting the last room in that little you know snake loop into the center that would be called a processional configuration right it's very different from just walking into the central room from any room all right and so what you discover and architects know this but actually they don't formalize this one of the things that computational design is formalizing is that that's one example of spatial configuration another example is basically like how tall the windows are in a room Right, that defines all sorts of things about the room. Right, how much you can see outside, how much people can see in. Where it's not just how much light comes in, but where the light goes and where the light goes at what time of day. Right, and so light is another piece of spatial configuration that is very uh, profound in in defining how spaces are experienced. And so the point is, is that um, in in defining architecture correctly, what you discover is that as everything in the real world gets an analog in some digital world the spatial layer of digital stuff rather than just any old 3D objects, I believe needs a special character because the way that spatial objects are deployed in the, in, in, in digital or virtual worlds is actually very different from how objects are deployed, right? When I say objects, I mean things that are, that are subspatial, that are things that people can manipulate basically at a size smaller than their body. Space things are generally speaking to things that are larger than their body. It tends to be the case that if something is larger than your body, it's significantly larger than your body, um, it'll be something that anchors the experience of many people at once, right? Unless you're sitting on your own in a space on your own, right? You may have a thing of your own, like a cat or a ball or a sofa or a chair or a computer, and, that, and you can be perfectly happy on your own with that thing, right? But once it gets to spatial domain, right, which I mean essentially building scale and above or room scale and above, but kind of basically building scale, um, it, the dynamics change. You don't sit there with it on your own, right? And so this is kind of a deeper reason why actually people haven't really thought this stuff through and why there's this massive gap in the market for people that to, for, to supply uh, uh, digital spatial assets to people that are creating or building digital spatial environments. They don't know the needle is assets. 
but they do need them. So one of the reasons why they don't know they need them is because actually most of the tests or development of any virtual environment people can go to, it's kind of been, been fixated on the on the affordances and the environment and the kind of the, 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 the scale of what an individual can do because we haven't had the computer power to create um, in a very dynamic way. I mean, Second Life is kind of interesting, but it's, it's not the same as a massively multiplayer role-playing game where there's enormous numbers of interaction dynamics and agents and things. Like that computational power particularly synchronous interaction between many agents with many different kinds of interactions in very rich environments has not been possible. Now that's possible, we actually have to think about the environments. We can't just have an experience that's just for a person in a, in a digital environment and then just not think about the space. Now we have to think properly in spatial terms. And, and so that's one of the reasons why um, this is a good thing. Because when people start thinking about it, they go, oh, well, it's a marketplace with 3D stuff. Well, we'll just dump buildings in the same marketplace with 3D stuff that you'll put orcs and sofas and cats and you know digital computers and it definitely isn't the case the software stack the competency the science behind is all different right and that's where i think we have an opportunity which is based so this is all a background to telling you what we're doing so treasury is a what we call a licensing um uh, uh tool set to ensure that people that have created worthwhile digital spatial assets environments themes can put their identity on them and define their relationship to them as owners or part creators or whatever. Um, uh, a, a syndication pipeline, right? I'll explain what syndication is in one second, but basically it's like a kind of technical broker. And if we're lucky enough to get big enough, an ecosystem around that. So it's helping creators um, uh, uh, of or owners of digital spatial assets, like buildings and places and imaginary environments um put immutably associate their identity with those things um a syndication pipeline which is basically what sits underneath marketplaces is a market space so anyone that has an environment where these things can be bought or traded or presented can get them through said treasury syndication system an ecosystem ideally of all sorts of partners you know software partners data partners legal partners creative partners around that to make it good and the point of it is to uh, in our you know sort of corporate language to to to, to uh, as it elevates creators and enable builders of digital spatial environments and creators digital spatial assets and and it might sound like it's just the marketplace but really um, the big idea right the bigger idea of all is just to, you know facilitate the distribution is actually to do to to, to help evolve the conversation that we sort of started which is what is all this for right what are we really doing what kind of immersivity are we seeking. Right. If we have any contribution here that's beyond just the technical, it is making sure that a massive, massive, massive hyperbolic increase in distribution of uh, of high definition, well protected digital spatial assets contributes to, for example, massively more efficient and benign uh, uh, and sustainable and socially inclusive urban environments, which I think is definitely possible. It's what I've been working on for a long time, but also just like thinking through what immersivity is. Right. What, you know, like, for example, one of the use cases for all of these kinds of things is health, right? We're, we're going through a, you know, rena- a renaissance and, you know, the, mean, the, the, the application of you know, psychedelic drugs. And for people who are resistant to actually taking drugs, their, their gateway or the extent to which they will be happy to engage is the psychedelic spatial experiences, which is one of the, the most profound contributions that all of this immersive stuff is going to contribute. This newly immersive stuff is going to contribute. So we think that having what we call an infrastructural layer, for you know asset licensing and distribution 
Um, and then, you know, all sorts of, you know, the two-way relationships between creators and builders is a great infrastructural contribution. What that leads to, what we would like it to lead to is, you know, where we'd like to take all this stuff if we're lucky enough to, you know, to not fuck up straight away, basically. <laughs> I love that. I love that. Um, I, I, I've got a question about progress. And I've got a question about progress and architecture and, and what you're building at Treasury. Um, there's a great – one of my favorite conspiracy theories is uh, – it's called Wither Tartaria. And it asks this question, um, why has all art gotten ugly over time? And, uh, you know, it's got – is it this, like, conspiracy of the elites or something? What's going on? Um, and, and I like conspiracies because oftentimes – most of the time, conspiracies are not true, but the conspiracy question uh, can be quite illustrative. So, you know, JFK, the you know, the, the idea that the mob killed him, the mob didn't kill JFK, but it does give you this sense that, well, the mob had a lot of influence in politics at that time, a lot more than, than what we have now. So I guess my question here is, um, as a uh, novice, as someone who is uh, not art-inclined or architecture-inclined at all, I, I seem to notice that over time, it almost seems like architecture has gotten uglier over time in a very robust way. Um, it, it seems like we used to build beautiful things, and, and now we don't at some level. It seems to be uh, quite inhuman most of the time. Is that a fair point? Uh, am I off base there? Is, is there something going on? Shawnee, I invite you to jump onto the landmark. Please, please go ahead. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, but personally, I mean, I obviously don't have as much of a background in uh, architecture as John does. Um, but I personally find those things to be a, I guess, a very online take. Um, and something that I also, you know, when you see them online, you subscribe to it because they show you, you know, they show you one picture of a beautiful thing that was built in, you know, 18 or whatever. Exactly. And then they, they, they show you another thing that's like it. And it's like one is like this huge, you know, government funded, uh, you know, uh, like church or, or probably not church, obviously, but uh, government funded like hospital or, or something where where there was a reason for them to put in the time and money and the effort into making it look good. And one's like a post office in Utah. Like, and so when you're, when you're creating those, you know, putting those two things together, of course, it looks like we're not creating beautiful things anymore. Uh, but I also think that we have to understand that a, it really just depends on the reason why we're creating something. And, and if you walk around and especially in, in bigger cities, uh, you could tell that there are still some really, really interesting, um, pieces of architecture, uh, that have been built recently. Um, it's just, I think, you know, People, as people say beauty is in the eye of the beholder, and if you're looking for beauty and you're looking for interesting contributions that are more recent, then then you will see it. Um, and so that's kind of kind of where I sit uh, on that question. I, I I personally don't. I like I said, I used to kind of buy into it more when it was just something that you see online, where we used to do this, and now it's now it's this. Um, but I have been trying to like spend more time and effort, you know, especially since joining Treasury, um, noticing architecture and, and looking into you know what we're doing today. And I think there are really a, a, a ton of very interesting things being built. Also on the same note, uh, I think, you know, there is, I saw this thing where it was like, oh, like where's today's Mozart or whatever. Um, and I think we do have to put some thought into how mediums change over time. Um, and the type of person that has the, uh, like passion and, and ability to create something, um, as you know, we get, the technology progresses, they might just choose to create something in a different medium. And, you know, on the 
probably where that comes from is just where, how you grow up and what foundation you have is on like a neurological level. Um, you know, when you're growing up and, you know, way back then or whatever, you know, it, it was, oh, all I have to do day in, day out is like paint or write novels or, you know, play piano. Uh, but now we just have so many different mediums that people can, you know, express their creativity through. And so I think taking one medium and saying, oh, we don't do that anymore. Okay. We, you can't just compare medium to medium when, you know, our entire culture and, and things that we're interested in and technological progress and all of that, uh, kind of just changes, uh, how people interact with art and beauty. Go ahead, John. Um, so yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's a tricky one. I mean, I, I will give you a, so three bites of this, right? I'll give you an argument from cognition, as I call it, argument from naturalism and some reflections on power, right? I mean, the argument that I think is actually most useful here is the argument from cognition. And, the, and, and, and so the way to approach this is by asking yourself, well, what is beauty, right? If you decompose beauty, right? Essentially, it, it has a couple of characteristics which, which immediately, when you expose them, makes you realize what a, what a subtle and slightly sneaky concept is. So if we say, what is beauty, right? We can, we can define at least two characteristics, right? It's aspirational, right? And it is somewhat hard to obtain or attain, all right? And so I think you probably could go deeper into human cognition and ask yourself, well, why is, why is it those things? Why is it desirable and why is it unattainable? Um, what was it represent on some deeper level? Um, whatever, use the genetic argument, make up some shit. But the point is that that is how beauty is represented. And I would say that at many previous points in human history, um, uh, a, cer- a certain aesthetic, right, has been uh, aspirational in part because it's unattainable. It's desirable, but it's not beautiful just because it's desirable. It's, des- it's beautiful because it's desirable and it's somewhat unattainable, right? And so what happens is that as society becomes more and more mechanized and more and more things are possible and more and more people become beautiful and more and more buildings, beautiful buildings become possible, I think what happens is that um, the human psyche ends up shifting its target for what is beautiful in the sense that it is uh, uh, attractive in some way, at least in some way, and unobtainable, right? And so we are getting these highly contorted psychic framings of what is beautiful because things that historically may have been attractive and unattainable and now attractive and attainable. And, you, and, I, and I'll tell you, you, you see how, how this works, right? If something is attractive and very attainable, immediately it's not very beautiful, right? If, if something's just standard, becomes boring, even unattractive. And so you realize that there's it, hidden into that, de- that partial definition of beauty, the seeds of perversity. If we get ourselves in a situation where things that historically have been beautiful are so standard, they become undesirable. We end up in a situation where we end up eroding um, an aesthetic comp- characteristic of what is desirable simply to get things that are un- uh, unattainable, right? And so we may end up in a situation where we have beautiful things that are extremely unesthetic, right? If you look at the Balenciaga uh, collection that came out recently, it's fucking hideous, <laughs> but apparently it's beautiful. Right? right, because it's unattainable and it's desirable for, for all sorts of complex reasons. Right, so that argument is an argument I would say from cognition, which is that if you study how cognition generate uh, 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 p- p- perceives and appreciates beauty as at least these two things, something that is desirable and unattainable, you can see that 
by very nature of the ontology of these things, we're going to end up in a situation, if we can create more beautiful things, they will shift the definition of beauty to things that ultimately might be unesthetic. Right? So that's a very different argument than one that's presented, because what it doesn't do is get into this, which is the argument from naturalism, which is one that all the fucking very online people use, and basically all the midwit like thinkers that call themselves trads or, you know, kind of aesthetic theorists, because there is an argument, right? And there is a seed of truth in an argument that there is something uh, objective about beauty, right? So you have to, you have to, you're going to, you have to leave aside for a second, because I don't, I'm not trying to push these two arguments together, um, the argument for cognition about how we get to unesthetic beauty. Uh, I think there's all sorts of reasons why, because uh, I, I do think there's a seed of truth in the idea that there's something objective in the beautiful, Um uh, I think there's a reason why we might move away from that, right? Separate from the argument for, from cognition. It can do with power. It could, it could be to do with, um, uh, it could be to do with, uh, industrialization. It could be to do with all sorts of things. All right. And I think that, you know, you can create a, 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 a simplistic, and I would say mostly wrong, but not entirely wrong argument for why we end up with unesthetic, beautiful things, if you see my point. Um, because we just get bored and we just keep trying new stuff and trendy people set up fashions, right? It's a shitty argument. It's not very well developed, but there's some seed of truth to it. And the reason why I say that argument to you and I share it and I present it in this outline form is because I do think there's actually probably something in, in it. I do think the symmetry, for example, is one of the things we will go back to. So what I think is persistent in this argument for beauty from naturalism is that we will end up back in certain mechanical reproduction systems that we call beauty. I think symmetry is an example of beauty that persists in all things, right? Even the Balenciaga collection has a remarkable amount of symmetry in it, right? So uh, the reason why I'm saying that is partly just to kind of say, I do think there's a super truth in there that's worth investigating, but also this, because if you have the argument from naturalism for beauty and architecture or metaverse objects, what you actually are revealing is the fact that you have lost the power. That's why I said, after an argument from cognition, an argument from naturalism, I would have reflections on power. Because the argument about beautiful naturalism is an argument that somebody took over the power and made things ugly. But what you're revealing by saying that is you don't have that power, right? right. And so the way I would park this conversation is, who deserves the power to say what is beautiful? It definitely isn't fucking people with trad in their Twitter <laughs> handle. All right. Um, and so, and so what I would say is I don't, this is a whole other kettle of fish. I don't think that <laughs> democratically determining in some beauty, some, some beauty kind of, in some kind of like, uh, 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 you know, tally system will define well what beauty is. But I would say that we cannot uh, address this carefully without seeing how power dynamics are playing out underneath. And the reason why I'm pretty negative about the argument from naturalism is because, and why I think it's quite stupid, is most of the people who deploy it are actually saying something else. They are essentially saying, I and people like me want the power back that we think we once had, right? And so in Treasury's case, thankfully, we don't have to have these conversations, right? What we want to do is to essentially say, these things are useful, right? And it may or may not be beautiful to have useful things in, in you know, the, the things that are useful in the, 
in the metaverse and the digital spatial environments may, may not be inherently beautiful, right? Not every building that's useful is beautiful, right? Um, not every space that is psychologically effective is inherently beautiful. There's all sorts of things that go beyond beauty per se. People want to focus on beauty. Let them focus on beauty, right? And one of the great things about the internet and digital uh, technology, which I adore, is that people can create the world that they want to create. No one's, no one's preventing you. If you, I mean, I have to think that, that most like architectural modernism is incredibly beautiful for all sorts of reasons right uh, that includes some you know, like brutalism but not all brutalism and i don't bother saying that because you end up stuck in these pathetic conversations that aren't well founded i'm like well i'm just gonna go look at the buildings i like or design the buildings i like um and the same is true for the metaverse and digital environments right so that is the actual answer you will you don't need to ask the question because no one's going to get to control it <laughs> that's great that's great i, I really <laughs> like that uh, it, it's interesting though because you highlighted something uh, i haven't thought about very much and it, it seems like Art is very much about power at some level at the end of the day. Uh, I would say the debate about beauty is very much about power. And what beauty is actually about, I think, is much more subtle than that. You know, because I think if you really want to define beauty, as I say, you have to go to how cognition works, how reproducing objects uh, that are beautiful leads to, you know, a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy of unesthetic beautiful things. I would, I would say that you probably can excavate um, uh, some kind of objectivity around, let's say, you know, starting with, let's say, symmetry, probably other things too. I don't think the golden mean is an example of it, but I do think symmetry is, is an example of it that sort of seeds a certain kind of thing, but I wouldn't take that very far. I would say that there's certain commonalities there. I think the, the key, the key question is, is that, um, if you really want to ask, is this why I said argument from naturalism, argument from, uh, uh from cognition, uh, uh, and then reflections on power? is that any theory on power is about power itself. Right. <laughs> you see, I didn't fall for the trap. So if, you, if you're trying <laughs> to get into the conversation about people saying abuse is about power, I'm like, well, if I was to take that bait, I would be positioning myself in a power debate that I have no interest in. Right? I think the best way to engage in that conversation is to say that there are multipolar universes, there are plural universes out there. One of the many, many great benefits of the internet, in particular spatial digital environments, is that we don't have to have this monopolar universe which is one answer to that question there doesn't need to be an answer to that question right right um and I'm, I'm very happy to 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 sidestep it with that very specific caveat if you talk about beauty in terms of power you'll end up trying to position yourself in some dynamic around a specific kind of power i don't need to treasure doesn't want to i think the great beauty of the internet is it diffuses many of those kinds of conversations just speak to people you want and if you're doing no harm Lovely, wonderful. What a what a what a great universe we live in, where plurality exists, and, and, and we can uh, yes, yes, and we don't, we don't have to worry about uh, these questions as much, which is very nice, very nice. Um, I, I, I'm curious. I mean, I mean let me, yeah, let me, let me I would, what I would say. So, it's just I had to completely undercut my little bit. Is I do think that um, people have a lot of power, right? So this is a pretty straightforward, you know, uh, uh, response. People who already have a lot of power should be more aesthetic or should be more discursive about their aesthetic choices. Right? So when Facebook puts up hideous spatial environments to launch Meta in Paris, in France, or in Spain, well, it's totally right they get punished for that. Um, uh, if they said we have made an aesthetic choice, so on and so forth, that would be interesting. That would be, I think, very, very, very uh, uh, beautiful. It would be very, very, um, uh, very um, generative and very meaningful, and we would have to participate in that. It's like, what are the beautiful spaces you know, they, they want to create? But then it becomes about power itself, 
right? I mean, the, one of the reasons why we know Facebook has too much power is because of this issue. The aesthetic choices they're making are inflicted on fucking billions of people. <laughs> so you can invert the thing and say, okay, let's start with the power, right? And say, is the power well distributed? Does that lead to a good outcome in terms of beauty? Well, almost certainly not, given diverse perspectives, but also certainly not because of, and definitely not, because if people with the power have no taste, then we're guaranteed to have bad <laughs> poor spatial aesthetics <laughs> and we end up uh, in a tough spot we, 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 which we appear to to have landed at, at the end of the day here um I, i'm curious i, I want to run all the way back to the beginning and i asked you about your your professional uh career and how, how you got here um i do think it's interesting you know you're clearly a super talented person uh both of you are um but you know you worked in architecture you're not working on physical buildings anymore. You're working in the digital world. Um, is it your sense that it has, and, and most people have like escaped onto the internet at some level. Um, our built environment does not seem to change as much as it used to, you know, pre 1970, not clear exactly what happened there. Is it your sense that it has gotten harder to change things in the real world? And that's why, you know, so much of our pro- narrow cone of progress has been focused on, uh, you know, bits, not atoms. Or is uh, something else going on? It's just higher leverage to work uh, in the in digital spaces, if that makes sense. Um, well, so, so I am still looking real boats. I mean, the last meeting still exists, right? And I, I want that to accelerate. I mean, the, the, the key thing is that, I mean, definitely one reason why I'm working on this is because, I mean, technology is, it's not just inherently a faster thing or, you know, just a faster moving thing than the, than the built world. It's that it is exhibiting um, exponential and synergistic properties. What I mean by that is that there are exponential properties of individual technologies as they get better and better and better. Um, let's say, for example, you know, energy efficiency of compute or, you know, cost of memory or these things are kind of like, you know, they're, they're specific domains that have exponential like returns. But then if you have a synergistic property where they all start combining, you have this like, you know, explosion of potential. So there are all sorts of reasons just technically about this moment, not necessarily inherently, but about this moment about technology, because there obviously technology can also plateau, uh, that it is moving forward very quickly. What I would say is that to get deeper into the question about what happened in the 1970s, or whatever, I do think the built environment just inherently moves slowly, right? I mean, there's lots of reasons for it. Um, one of the re- I mean, the obvious reasons, right, is it's just heavy and big stuff, right? Making buildings, fixing buildings is just it's different from sitting and fiddling with code, right? If a, if a piece of a building falls off, right, the plumbing in a building falls off, you can't, you know, boot up the VS code and start, <laughs> you know, patching it, sitting at your computer with a nice fast internet connection. You've got to, you know, you know, ring somebody who with the right tools. And if they come with the wrong tools, they've got to go back again. If the phone line is broken, they, you know, you can't even reach them. Like the, the real world has these constraints, but actually that's not very interesting. That's not the real reason why the built environment changes slowly. The, the, the real, what, the real reason why the built environment changes slowly, um, is very fascinating and no one talks about this, which is that in any other domain other than the built environment, right? The iteration cycle of improvement or of testing and the cost of that iteration cycle is low. In the computational domain, it's almost zero, right? One of the reasons why there's so much explosion and why there's so much acceleration is because to improve things is increasingly, and to invent new things is increasingly a zero marginal cost exercise, right? And so if you have zero marginal cost technology and you kind of get to effectively zero marginal cost capital, which is kind of where venture capital sits in the capital stack, almost zero marginal cost in the t- total you know, cost of capital, um, then you have zero marginal cost innovation, basically, right? At least in the technical domain. 
Um, that is never and is not possible in the case of the spatial domain, not just because it's hard, as I described, but because it's massively risky. There is no way to innovate with a city without immediately killing lots of people, right? There is a non-zero cost innovation, the innovation cycle in the spatial environment, right? So it isn't just that it's inherently slow, it's that it's massively risky. So you cannot unpick and unpack real people and their lives from it. Right? There's no testing place where you can test an energy system at the size of a city, right? You can't test a waste management system at the size of a city. You can't, you know. And so what that means is you, when you implement something, you, you kind of have to commit to it working first time, which is why nuclear power plants take 20 years to develop, right? Even in Finland, of all places. One of the reasons why nuclear power is not the panacea people think it is because it just takes so long to implement because you cannot put it into a fast innovation cycle. So that is the deeper issue, right? Technology moves forward fast. People are having a moment where it's all converging and there's these, these exponential dynamics. Uh, the built world is slow because it's fucking lumpy and, and heavy and annoying. It just doesn't, it doesn't you know, as, the way I say it, it's, uh, 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 space does not scale. Space is space. You can't find a way to make it more space inherently more efficient. It's just annoying. But then the real issue is that the innovation cycle for the real world cannot be put into a kind of zero cost loop. Every every version of innovation in the real world is is, is expensive in in human terms. All right, um, and so that comes back to the kind of the institutional dynamic around these things, um, which is what happened in the seventies. Well, you know, I do think institutional like environments in which you know uh, spatial phenomena uh, evolve have changed right so there's less commitment to infrastructure investment infrastructure development infrastructure as a point of national pride or civic pride uh, and i do think that's a problem but i also do think that the world just gets full up right i mean the infrastructure explosion in the post-war period was the first and only ever like infrastructural ex- explosion for a modern society Right, there never were, you know, like you know, uh, cars for everybody or roads for everybody, uh, and since till then, right. So it's not just that we got bored of it; it's like we did it once, and kind of now all that stuff is in the way, right? The the infrastructural inertia, uh, and institutional inertia of things we've done at that scale—that's part of this innovation cycle. Problem is, you just can't get rid of the stuff that's there to try new things, right? You can't strip away all the cars and go, "We'll just try hyperloop for a few years." That doesn't want to go back to cars. Right, and so it's not just like this kind of shift in institutional framing from like a more um, sort of left-wing or state-centric infrastructure investment model to market-centric and technical and kind of entrepreneurial and innovation types. It's just that the stuff we created infrastructurally is there, and we can't get rid of it for better or for worse. What I would say is that this, and this is to close the loop, um, why computational design is interesting is that it is the way in which you can you can fix that issue. Of, of not being able to run uh, uh, in- innovation iterations at scale, right? It's getting to be the case that we can run modeling at city scale, certainly at building scale, using computers very effectively. E- e- right now, right, you know, it's one of my, you know, heroes, um, uh, this guy called Clifton Harness, who has, you know, started a company called uh, TestFit five years ago. And really it's very simple, right? He isn't trying to create like super automated, like floor plan generators or seeing it all done. He just says, look, I can optimize some variables for you as a real estate developer. How many parking spaces go into this slot? What kinds of units can fit into that slot without wasting too much space? Like very defined questions. So it's not an all single dancing AI to generate buildings. It's a very specific problem solving tool that grows in its capabilities, but it's very pragmatic. And that is the track we're on. We are using computers to solve more and more and more of the problems that 
we have and don't understand very well and can't innovate with or iterate or test or explore without computers. And that is a good thing to see. It's not quite the same as generative design, but it is um, at scale problem solving. And so I th- there's a long way of saying, I think there are good re- or good, right? there, is, there are objective reasons why it's very hard to innovate in the built environment. Um, and computers are starting to help them. One thing I would also say, right, and this is um, one Final commentary on this because I don't want to avoid this in a slightly too technical framing. And I, from what you told me before the podcast started, you might get this. There's one other phenomenon in innovation and evolution in the built environment that is very, very problematic uh, and I definitely think should change, but and it, people aren't really focusing on it. And it's consolidation of ownership of land, right? right? I mean, there is a phenomenon that has happened through history to the extent that no one ever thinks about it. It's basically the massive distortion that sits in the heart of conventional economics, both left and right, that whoever's there first somehow seems to own all the land, right? Um, uh, and um, that's bad. And that's just very bad, right? Because if there isn't enough of incentive for the tenants, as it were, horrific language, of the land of a city, um, to, uh, to, to be rewarded through change because the people that own the land already have everything they want, which is pretty much the case for most of the modern cities of the world, then things aren't going to change fast enough, right? So the incentive structure associated with land ownership is, for, for accelerating change is a whole different thing than you know, the risk cycle of the built environment or whatever it may be. Uh, that is a giant problem. I don't want to ignore that because I do think it's probably the biggest political problem of any era, including ours, for some reason, it just isn't taken that seriously. Things that you're taking it seriously, what I would say is that the correct way of approaching it, in my view, is not to demonize the owners because that would just never work. Right. They own it and the, and the, and the power structures are, in, are in, enshrined that land ownership premise. It is to demonstrate that it is not efficient for them in any way to do that. It's not just a justice argument. It's an efficiency argument, efficiency of capital, efficiency of value, efficiency of whatever they claim that they're seeking a, a, as landowners. And anyway, but that's a longer conversation. No, that, it's very wise. It seems very important to focus on efficiency and not like, uh, you know, justice reasons when, you, when you're pursuing these these ends. Um, no, this is this is very good advice. Uh, John, uh, Shawnee, I've really enjoyed this conversation. I, I've learned a ton today. Um, where can people find you? Where should we send them if they're interested in Treasury? Uh, so treasury.space, right, is the website that we are um, launching in the near future. And all the relevant things will be linked from there. Um, yeah, I mean, that's the main thing. I mean, we have an office in San Francisco um, and we'll be visible. You know, we'll be having, you know, sort of weekly events in our office there. We'll be visible upcoming uh, at New York Tech, New York Tech Week. Um, and gradually we're coming out of stealth doing more and more kind of demos of the, of the technology stack, the you know, registry system for assets, the discovery system for asset showing. We've got a bunch of other tools that we're developing. And uh, so if people are curious, um, go to the website and, uh, and, and, and click and connect in some way. Awesome. I'll put the link down in the show notes. Thanks, folks. Thanks, Will. Thank you. Special thanks to our sponsor, Bismarck Analysis, for the support. Bismarck Analysis creates the Bismarck Brief, a newsletter about intelligence-grade analysis of key industries, organizations, and live players. You can subscribe to Bismarck Brief at brief.bismarckanalysis.com. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with a new episode of Narratives. 
Special thanks to Donovan Dorrance, our audio editor. You can check out Donovan's work and music at donovandorrance.com.